lots of empty seats this morning, uh, more than usual. I don't know about a lot, but more than usual. And then, uh, and then a lot of folks, I think, will be joining us online after the fact, listening to the, the sermon uh, on the website. And so I wanted to publicly shame those people <laughs> that, you know, your friends and family that didn't make it this morning, or those that will be... Um, Again, joining us online after the fact, and uh, usually a sermon gets posted on Tuesday. So instead of publicly shaming them and telling them what I think, I'm just going to ask my friend a couple of questions in a public forum. Miss Marion, where did you uh, drive from this morning to be here? Oshawa, okay. And, and, and when do you turn 90? On Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> so look, man, if you are under 90 and closer than Oshawa, you have no excuses. Like it's, at some point, Marion, is there like this moment where you go, like the roads are clearly dangerous, right? Clearly dangerous. Do you just say, you know what, I'm 90. I've made it this far, like, do I say, oh, I can't hear you. I was, shh, shh, I'm talking to Marion. Say it again, Marion. The highway was pretty good. How long did it take you? Yeah, did you hit anything on the way? Not that you remember? <laughs> um, Miss Marion, you're so sweet. Uh, thanks for letting me talk to you in front of everybody. Um, Listen, we're going through a study in the Gospel of John, so I would love it if you would open up your Bibles with me into John chapter 15. Uh, here's where we're at in the book of John. Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated Passover. They're in Jerusalem. And in order to understand the context, and it's so, so critical even to kind of get our minds around and, and get a mental picture of what's going on here in John chapter 15, verse 11. Let's rewind and, and hit really quickly the very last statement Jesus makes in John chapter 14. He says, rise, let us go from here. And so here's what Jesus means by here. He means the upper room in Jerusalem, the place where they've just celebrated Passover. And so when he says, rise, let us go from here, they rise and go from there. Write that down. That's good stuff this morning. I'll tell you what. So, so here's why that's critical. Because the next time in the book of John where he lets us know anything about the disciples, Jesus and the disciples' geography, we will find them in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may have heard that story where Jesus is praying in the garden and he tells his disciples, keep watch and pray with me. And he comes, keeps coming back to them and they keep falling asleep. I would have been one of those disciples. I sleep really heavy. It's one of like Amy's least favorite things about me. I typically don't remember when planes are taking off. I'm asleep. And typically I wake up when they're unloading bags from above my head. I would have been like one of those disciples, just conked out. And so here's what we know about ancient Jerusalem. Look up here on the screen. The Garden of Gethsemane is up here just on the northeast-southwestern side of the Mount of Olives. John also tells us that the disciples 
cross the Kidron Valley before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Kidron Valley is right down here, all through here. There's a river down here in a big valley. And back over on this side, outside of the TV where you can't see, there's Bethany, where they have just come from at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. And they've entered into Jerusalem proper, into an upper room. They've celebrated, celebrated Passover. And once again, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. The next time we see them is up here on the Mount of Olives. So we can deduce fairly, and, and just, just about any uh, biblical commentator would agree here, that they've exited the city down here. They've gone outside the city gates. They've crossed the Kidron Valley, which John tells us they've done. And they walk up here to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus ends up praying. And this route outside of the city and all along the outside eastern wall would have been lined with vineyards, grape plants that look kind of like this. That's a modern vineyard. Uh, we, we don't have pictures of vineyards from first century Palestine because Instagram was not invented yet. That's a joke. You have to stick with me this morning. I know your brain is cold, but come on now. So picture this. As Jesus and his disciples get up, leave the Passover meal where he's just washed their feet, where he's just indicated the person who's going to betray them. Everybody is freaking out. They know that Jesus is about to die. His death is imminent. He keeps telling them this. There's this kind of ominous tone and cloud that's over everything. And they begin to walk through these vineyards one after another where grapes are hanging off of vines that are propped up by trellises. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We don't need to kind of get into the metaphor this morning and kind of, you know, I, I just, but I, I, it's important, I think, that we go through it quickly, that we understand kind of what's happening here. But, but I don't want to like insult your intelligence. Everybody, I think we kind of understand the metaphor that Jesus is building here. So, real quickly, we have a vine, right, and a vine dresser. We have the vine itself that's producing fruit, and we have the vine dresser who has planted that vine, who is caring for that vine, who is helping that vine to bear fruit, all right? This is the, this is the literal picture that Jesus is drawing that, that, that helps us, or he's metaphorically drawing, but whatever. He's painting for his disciples that is going to help us understand some spiritual truth, but he's taking literal things to help us understand spiritual truth. So we've got a vine and a vine dresser, and we've got branches. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and so we've got fruit. So there's four primary things that Jesus is talking about in this metaphor as they're walking through these vineyards. Those four things are the vine, the vine dresser, branches, and fruit. Is everybody with me here? Not complicated. The vine, the vine dresser, branches, and fruit. However, if we take our 21st century mindset and we superimpose it over the top of first century Israel and Palestine, then we will be lost. And maybe not even lost, maybe, maybe just incomplete. 
because there are some very deep and rich things that Jesus is saying here about God's grand redemptive plan. I think some of us can maybe deduce or conclude that like, okay, so Jesus is the vine. We connect to him. We're the branches and we bear the fruit of, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And God will prune us back and, you know, he'll care for us and so that we bear more fruit. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty appropriate interpretation of the parable, to be frank. But you know what? It's deeper than that. It's more complex than that. It's richer than that. There's more there that if we put ourselves in the mind of the disciples, and not just the mind, maybe even kind of the whole psyche, how they saw the world, the lens through which they understood Jesus and everything around them. If we do that, we're going to see this parable in a lot richer and more compelling type of way. So let's start with the vine. The vine. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Not just, I am the vine, but I am the true vine. See, this parable works just fine if Jesus just says, I'm the vine, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Okay, all right, that makes sense. You bear fruit, you remain in me, you get your life from me, bear fruit. But he doesn't say I'm the vine. He says, I am the true vine. Everybody say that word with me, highlighted in yellow. I am the what? True vine. I am the true vine. And he doesn't mean true as opposed to false. He means authentic as opposed to inauthentic. He means genuine as opposed to disingenuous. He means successful vine as opposed to unsuccessful vine. I am the true vine. And it begs the question then, who or what is the false vine? What, what, what is the vine that failed? What is the vine that's inauthentic, disingenuous, unsuccessful? Well, stick with me here. In the Old Testament, God established a family for himself that eventually became a nation. That nation was called the nation of Israel. Again, please don't superimpose a 21st century understanding of Jewishness or the nation of Israel over the top of this passage. Look at it from an ancient understanding that this is God's family, God's people that he established on the earth in order to do and work and act according to his good pleasure. They became kind of the megaphone of God. God talked like, hey, I've got grace and goodness and kindness for you. And Israel was meant to project that to the nations. Not only that, but Israel was supposed to nourish the nations, nourish the world with the good things of God, with the fruit of God, with all that God had to offer. So, so, all across the Old Testament, God begins to call Israel a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. That's what you are. Israel, my people, you're my vine. You know, it's not like today. You're my homie. You're my dude. What do they say on the Instagram now, fam? Fam, is this going to be lit, fam? Is that what they say? I don't know. I don't know what the kids are saying these days. I know more about John 15 than I do about the gram. Um, Israel's a luxuriant vine. 
Watch this, same in the Psalms, watch. You brought a vine, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You rescued your people from Egypt. You may have heard that story before. You drove out the nations and you planted it, the vine. You cleared the ground for it and took deep root and filled the land. And that vine was meant to bear fruit, to nourish the nations with the things of God. Watch this. Not just God's view of Israel, not just the way he saw his people, but they began to see themselves that way as well. You might have heard the story of the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolution. It happened about 200 years before Jesus. That's where Hanukkah finds its roots in the Maccabean Revolution. That group of people were Jews and they minted coins and on the front of their coins was a big vine. In the temple, the Jewish temple in the first century, in one of the gates, uh, even before Herod uh, rebuilt it, even before uh, the, the, the temple destruction in, in 70 AD, there, there was a gate in that temple that was shaped like an enormous vine. See, not just it wasn't just God that said, Israel, you're my vine. Israel said, we're your vine. That's us. That's what we do. We produce fruit. So when Jesus comes along and he says to a bunch of Jewish men, these members of the nation of Israel who had always saw themselves and their brothers and sisters in the nation of Israel as God's true vine. When Jesus comes around and he looks at them and he says, I am the true vine. They say, oh, a what? A who? What? A begging, a, a begging pardon? You're the, you're the, you're the what? That's us. That's us. It's been us for, for like forever. You're the true vine? How is that so? Well, in order to understand how that's so, we've got to talk about the fruit. We've got to talk about the fruit. See, vines are meant to bear fruit. That's the vine's only job. The vine's job is not to drive Uber, right? The vine's job is not to look pretty. If the vine doesn't look pretty but still bearing fruit, you leave the vine there. Everything's good. Everything's fine. And so the nation of Israel was charged to bear fruit. You are to nourish the nations with fruit. Well, the fruit of what? Well, the fruit of God's charge for you that's encompassed by and recorded in the Old Testament. And so if you look at the Old Testament and you read it from start to finish, from Genesis to all the way to uh, Zechariah, Malachi, you would say, okay, that's the fruit that the nation of Israel was supposed to bear. Okay, so here's the second question. Instead of reading all that this morning, can we sum it up? Instead of reading all the books of the Old Testament, can we sum it up? Well, rabbis pre-Jesus were asked the same question. How do you sum up the law? What, what are the, what's the fruit that we're supposed to bear as God's vine? What is it? And, and there was a lot of disagreement and other things when it came to rabbinic tradition, but there was much agreement when it came to how do we sum up the law. And, and, and most rabbis would point to this one verse in the book of Micah. They would say, here's how you sum up the law. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what? What does the Lord require of you? Three things. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. That's the summary. So, Israel was supposed to be the vine, and they were supposed to bear the fruit of justice, kindness, and humility. But if you read the Old Testament, and you read how God's people interacted with one another and interacted with the nations around them and interacted with foreigners and sojourners, how they interacted with widows and orphans, how they went about their life, you would look at that and you would say, 
I don't see a lot of justice, kindness, and humility. How many of you have ever read a story or heard a story in the Old Testament that you think, well, that's really ugly? Raise your hand if you've ever heard one of those. And maybe you don't talk like that. That's really ugly. Maybe you don't talk like that, but you think to yourself, well, that's fouled up, man. Like, like dude gets drunk and like this person sleeping with the, the daughter and raping a step-sibling and, and this guy is overtaking his dad's kingdom and trying to kill him and this is, this is messed up stuff. This does not sound like justice, kindness, and humility to me. And God says, right, right. That's the fruit they were supposed to bear. That's what they were supposed to nourish the nations with. But they didn't. The vine that was Israel failed to do so. And listen, listen, I hate to tell you, we're not any different. In 2,000 years, we haven't, we haven't figured out a way to change that when we're left to our own devices. So Jesus comes along and he starts to tell these parables, right? He starts to tell these stories to help the nation of Israel really see themselves with clarity. Instead of thinking to themselves, we've always borne the fruit of justice, kindness, and humility. We're God's people. Brush your shoulders off. We're cool. We're good. We're children of Abraham. We do all the right things. We've got all the religious stuff. We're the chosen. We're the elect. All that stuff, Right? Right? Jesus says, okay, let me help you kind of turn the mirror towards yourself and see yourself with crystal clarity. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, they didn't like it. They didn't like it. But Jesus tells parables like this one in Luke chapter 20. Watch. He says, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. So the nation of Israel is already seeing themselves in the parable, aren't they? All these Jews that are listening, that's us. We're the vineyard. This is going to go great for us. It's going to be a really good story about us being God's vineyard. A man planted a vineyard and let, out, let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the nation of Israel is listening to him. Jews are listening to him going, well, that didn't start well. It's not going to finish well either. Keep going. He sent another servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him. So that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? That's not a complicated question, is it? I sent messenger after messenger after messenger. You beat the tar out of them and kicked them out. Then I sent my only son and you killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Congratulate them probably. Or give them a very stern warning. Right? A sharply worded letter. No. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard, them, heard this, they said to him, surely not. <laughs> surely not. This can't be true. But he looked at them and said, could you imagine Jesus? He looked directly at them, eye contact now. What then is this that's written? 
So, so what do you say to this Old Testament passage? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking about himself. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Then the scribes and the chief priests, the religious leaders, sought to lay hands on him. Understand, this is not lay hands on him and pray for him. You know what that means. Lay hands on and kill him. They sought to lay hands on him. Why? Because they perceived that he had told this parable against them. And of course he did. Of course he did. Jesus is saying to the nation of Israel, and, and I'll just, you know, spoiler alert here. He's saying to you and me as well, we have not produced the fruit that God requires. Our lives are not always marked with pursuing justice. Exhibiting kindness, walking humbly with God. If there was a mirror turned on your life, like Jesus used this parable here to turn a mirror towards the chief uh, scribes and Pharisees saying, really evaluate yourself, really look at yourself. God has charged you to be a bearer of fruit so that people around you are nourished by your very presence. And the way that you do that is you show justice. When someone is wronged, you stand up for them. When someone is bruised or broken or hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, you come alongside and bring healing. That's my justice, God said. You fight against the oppressors and fight for the oppressed. That's justice. Kindness, kindness. It's mercy. It's giving someone what they, refusing to give them what they deserve and giving them love and acceptance and kindness on top of that. Man, oh man, we live in a world that doesn't do that very well. And frankly, friends, you and I don't do that very well either. Loving kindness. And walking humbly with God. That means that all the time our heart posture towards our heavenly father. And to be frank towards the others he's put in our life. Is yeah I'm submitted to you. Yes God I'm walking with you. Yes I do what you say not what I say. Yes I adopt your values not my own. Yes you know what's right more than I know what's right. We've not always done that. Just as the nation of Israel was the false vine, we're the false vine that didn't bear fruit. But watch this. Watch this now. This is great. Jesus says, I am the true vine. So listen really closely to what Jesus is saying. Listen really close to this parable of the vine and the branches is saying to us that Jesus bears fruit that we never could. That Jesus bears fruit that we never could. He always pursued justice. He always loved kindness, even when it cost him his life. He always walked humbly with God. Even though he had all authority in heaven and on earth, he submitted himself to others around him, went so far as to submit himself even to death. If you read about the life of Christ and you just come with an objective lens, you just want to, just want to look and see, what did he do? What did he think? How did he behave? What you're going to see is justice, kindness, and humility over and over and over and over and over again, such that people around him were so attracted to him, they just wanted to, to, to be close to him. 
and they would walk away feeling renewed and refreshed and nourished and invigorated because of his life and behavior. He bore the fruit that we never could. Now, this is where this really sometimes confusing and often thrown around theological term, but it's so core to who you and I are as Christ followers. This is where it comes from. It's called the imputation of righteousness. Watch this. Now look very, very closely at me. Ready? You don't have any righteousness of your own. I love you. You're good-looking people. Seem nice, but you don't have any righteousness of your own. We were the vine, just as Israel, that didn't bear fruit. But Jesus comes along and he says, but I, 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 bear, I bore fruit. My life was perfect. And because I did that, I can now give that to you. I can place that on you. That's the imputation of righteousness. You come to me and say, I can't bear fruit on my own. I need you. And Jesus says, yes, you do. So here I am. That's why we say things in here, and you might have heard me say this before, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees you through a Jesus lens. You look back at all the stuff you've ever done in your life, stuff you've failed to do in your life, places where you could have sought justice, loved kindness, and walked humbly, and you go, I didn't do those things. Some of you maybe need reminders. Recall university. Recall the way that you treated your children this week. There were several occasions when my daughter would say, Daddy, I don't think you're loving kindness very well right now. <laughs> where you didn't walk humbly with God and it showed in the way you treated your spouse, Jesus comes along and says, I have it handled because I did all of those things on your behalf and I can place them, give them to you so that when the vine dresser sees you, he sees you as a child. Now, this should also change the way we read the scripture. And I want to, I harp on this, I think, quite a bit, but to, to, to be honest, I think it's so, so critical. So, so many people, I hear them say, like, why do you come to church? They say, I want to kind of come to church so that my children get a good moral foundation. Great, that's fine. But you know, that's not the point of the Bible, right? I'm glad they're here to get a good moral foundation. We want to, you know, bring, you know, I'd love to, you know, have children and baby kids and baby youth ministry that are moral and not immoral kids, right? I think that's a good thing. But the Bible comes along, and, and what Jesus is saying here is that we, we didn't live up to God's moral code. And Jesus says, but I did. And because I went to the cross for you and because I, was, I rose again on the third day, I can give you that righteousness that you lack. And so when we read the scripture, instead of it becoming a moral code for us to live up to, it becomes a mirror or a lens for us to understand our own brokenness and then submit it to Christ. So, so let me say it this way, that the Bible's moral code is a diagnosis, not a treatment plan. 
It's a diagnosis, not a treatment plan. We come to the Bible and we start to read all these things, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, but also in the New. And it's like, okay, don't steal. Okay, pretty much don't, don't, I try not to steal stuff. I mean, you know, I pirated some music one time when Napster was a thing. But other than that, I try not to steal stuff. You know, don't commit adultery. Don't kill people. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I've got all those things covered. I did all that from, from when I was a kid. And that's not true. Because when you continue to understand the code that God has for us, he says, be holy as I am holy. So it's not just about not sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse. Jesus says, anybody who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Uh-oh, well, that's a little higher standard, isn't it? Well, it's not just about you didn't take a gun and shoot somebody. I mean, you don't live in the U.S. anyway, so that's kind of what we do there. But here, you know, I didn't murder anybody. I've never killed anybody. Jesus says, you hated your brother in your heart, you've killed them. It's not just about those actions, about those heart behaviors. And so when we start to understand the Scripture, and we go, well, well, I seem to fall short all the time. And Jesus goes, yes, you do. And that's the diagnosis. I fall short. I'm a short faller. Hmm. That's, that's why Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now I've got a diagnosis. And some of us are treating that moral code as a treatment plan. We're using it as something that we go through in order to impress God. And we're trying to tick all those boxes and do all those things. And we read it and we go, I've always lived up to all these things. And when I haven't, I've really worked hard, right? I've really worked hard to fix my life and bear fruit. More and more and more and more and more and more and more fruit. And God comes along and goes, okay, maybe, 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 the, new, the moral code of the scripture is, is, is to diagnose our issue, not to fix it. And just to go, we can't live up to God's moral code. We can't live up to his standard. And Jesus comes along again and says, I am the what? True vine. I did. I did live up to the standard. I did bear the fruit of justice and kindness and humility. And so we submit ourselves now to the true vine so that we can bear the fruit that we never could on our own. Jesus keeps going. He says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And for some of us, we ask this question, okay, so is this about salvation? Is this passage about salvation? No, Jesus says that to his disciples, and I love it. He makes it so clear. He says, already you are clean. You're already saved. This is not about eternal destination, heaven and hell, bearing fruit or more fruit or enough fruit to be saved. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is people that have already been rescued and regenerated, redeemed by God, and now he has turned them loose to live a life in the world of justice, kindness, and humility. He says, already I'm clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Okay, so here's my question. If I have always failed at bearing fruit, on my own, left, left to my own devices. And Jesus comes along as the true vine that does bear the fruit that God requires. Here's my question. How do I bear fruit? This is the charge. Jesus says in verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And, and, and you need to bear fruit. That's your charge. So my question is, again, 
that was a lot of like bad news about how the nation of Israel never bore fruit and I don't bear fruit and I'm not living up to God's expectations. So how in the world am I supposed to do any of that that God has charged me to do? I'm so glad you asked that question because Jesus is about to answer it. Ready? He says, abide in me and I in you. The branch can't bear fruit by itself. Is this not one of the most obvious things in all of Scripture? Thank you, Captain Obvious. I would never say that to Jesus' face, but thank you, Captain Obvious. Branch can't bear fruit by itself. If, the, if a branch is cut off on, from the vine and just laying on the ground, we look at it and go, well, good luck bearing fruit, dude. Not going to happen. Right? Branch can't bear fruit by itself. Okay, unless it abides in the vine. Oh, all right, all right, starting to make sense. Neither can you. Unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, it's not the third time he's used that phrase, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Okay, so in order to bear much fruit, I want to abide in Jesus. I want to abide in the vine. Okay, the disciples are starting to get it. For apart from me, you can do, say that word with me, nothing, nothing. Not some things, not a little bit of things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone, Jesus says, does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Look, people say this all the time. I hear people say this. This is like People say this is a metaphor for hell. Jesus is saying if you don't bear fruit, if you're a branch that doesn't bear fruit, you're thrown into the fire of hell and it's burned. That's not what this passage is about. We just said it's not about salvation. It's about sanctification. It's about working out our salvation in our own life. So Jesus is saying a really obvious thing here. If you're a branch and you don't bear fruit, you're not really good for anything, right? Branch has one job. Bear fruit. I mean, you could look really good, but if you're not bearing fruit, you're not doing your job. Like, it's not good for anything. So Jesus keeps going. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Very simple answer to that question, how do I bear fruit? And it's this, it's just abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Now, what I want to do with our time remaining here is two things. One is I want to help us see that word abide from a little different perspective than maybe you have before. And second, I want to tell you a couple of things, just a couple of practical things that abiding in Christ is really going to take. Okay, So here's the first thing. Uh, that word abide is meno in the original language, and it means to remain in or stay. Remain in or stay. But remember, Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples, is walking through a vineyard. And what he would have seen in that vineyard is a couple of different types of vines. He would have seen really healthy vines that were bearing fruit. And he could have walked by those things and he says, see, a, you, you, this is the kind of, you got to bear fruit. This is your job. You're a branch. This is a branch. Jobs to bear fruit. And then he would have seen some branches that were disconnected from vines. And he might have, we don't have stage direction here, he might have picked them up and he goes, apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like this branch is disconnected from the vine. And the disciples are dim-witted and they're going, oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, like that's really simple. I got that. And then he would have seen, and his disciples would have seen, a little bit different type of vine. He would have seen a vine that had been grafted. So watch this. Listen really, really closely. What happens is when a vine is diseased or when a branch is struggling, when it gets dry, 
when it's not getting enough sun, when it's dying, there's this thing that uh, a, a vine dresser does and they take that broken or diseased vine and they graft it into a healthy vine. In fact, in the late 19th century in California, a bunch of California viticulturists, I know that word now, viticulture, by the way, uh, they, they had vines, they were growing vines in, in, in Northern California, and they had both California vines and Italian vines. Well, the Italian vines weren't really used to California bugs, so these California bugs showed up and they started to eat these Italian vines like crazy, and they weren't producing grapes. And so what they did was they took branches of these uh, grapes plants and they grafted them into healthy California vines. And within two years, all their bugs had been taken care of and their vineyard was producing healthy fruit. This is how grafting works. Look up here on the screen. This individual is a viticulturist. This guy grows vines and he cuts into a healthy stock. That's, that's the healthy vine. And then he takes this little bitty bud. You can see it in here. That's called a scion is what that little thing is called. And again, I know this stuff now because of the interwebs. Very good. Takes this little scion. This is the unhealthy branch that may have been diseased, not get enough sun, not get enough water. And he grafts it into this healthy vine. Then he bandages them up together and he replants this healthy vine into the ground. And so what happens is the unhealthy bud that's in here that was a part of a different plant now that wasn't producing fruit now begins to draw its life and its nourishment from a healthy fruit-producing vine. Do I need to unpack that metaphor for us at all this morning? This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying, okay, here's what's happened. God has picked you up a branch that wasn't bearing fruit. And now you've been grafted into the family, into a fruit-producing vine. And, and now we're wrapped up together, intertwined, now he says, abide in me. Stay there. Just stay there. No branch is going like this to bear fruit. Grapes. More grapes. That's not what happens. These branches, what do they have to do in order to bear fruit? Just stay there. Don't move. Don't struggle. Don't push back. The vine dresser's going, I fixed it. Just stay there. Just stay there. But listen, when God does this grafting process, and, and, and this is what, what I want to encourage you with and exhort you with today, there's a couple of things that that takes. The first is this, is that abiding requires injury. Let, let, let's take our metaphor of the healthy vine stock and the scion. In order to get a place for the scion in a healthy vine, that vine has to be cut. You know the most typical shape they cut into a healthy, a healthy vine, by the way? The most typical shape is actually a cross. 
Don't take that too far, by the way, but whatever. That's, the, that's typically what they cut. That vine has to be injured some way. And then that scion has to be cut back just a little bit so it will fit in that hole so that they can be grafted together. In the same way, Jesus, as our fruit-bearing vine, had to be injured. Nails in his hands and his feet and a spear in his side. He had to be opened up. <laughs> He had to cross an unfathomable chasm. And you and I, we have to be injured a little bit too. And not even a little bit, but a lot. We have to take up our cross daily. We have to be willing to submit to the vine dresser's careful hand as, they, as he prunes us back so that we fit like hand in glove with that vine. It's going to require injury. Men and women of God, if you are not bearing spiritual fruit in your life, I would invite you to pray a very bold prayer. Oh God, injure me. Not, not injure me, like break my leg, not that stuff, but oh God, humble me. Break me. Uh, disrupt me. Peel me back. So that the only thing I want to do and then the only thing I can do is just stay put. Because that's the way we bear fruit. Just stay right there. Number two, abiding requires surrender. Abiding requires surrender. Could you imagine that unhealthy branch that the vine dressers picked up and begins to peel back and is going to graft into a healthy vine going, Stop it! Stop! Don't touch me. I'm fine where I'm at. No. That unhealthy branch simply surrenders to the careful hand of the vine dresser. Men and women of God, when, when, when the vine dresser, when the heavenly father begins to carve you up a little bit, I hate to use such aggressive language, but that's sometimes what happens, isn't it? Like, it doesn't always feel like pruning in our life. It's, you know, somebody with these, you know, these teeny tiny dainty little gloves and a very small, like, scissors going, lovely, lovely. That's not what it feels like. Sometimes it feels like, right? And then God pruning us back. But it requires surrender. It requires us to say, okay, I trust you. Because why? You're the vine dresser. You planted that healthy vine. I trust you because you know exactly what's going on here. You know why I'm not bearing fruit. So if I've got to take a little snip and snip and snip, that's fine. And if it needs to be that too, I surrender. That's what abiding requires. Uh, abiding requires patience. To remain, to stay. That requires patience. So many of us, I think, like we say, okay, New Year's resolution I'm going to get, I'm spiritually, man, I'm going to be on track. I'm going to stop yelling at my kids, right? Get some stuff in order. That's my New Year's resolution. And then, like, we go to church a couple times a month, except when it's snowing. We have to drive from Oshawa. Then we don't go. But other than that, we're going to go a couple times a month. Maybe we read our Bible once or twice, and we listen to a podcast. And, like, six months down the road, we go, well, why hasn't my life changed? Well, 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 Jesus' commandment is just to stay there. <laughs> you just keep doing that stuff. Fruit doesn't come overnight, friends. 
It's like a 24-hour deal. The best vines are what? Uh, the oldest vines, aren't they? Produce the most fruit. People like Marion. I'm not going to call Marion an old vine. Not until Wednesday when she turns 90. But let me tell you something. That, that woman has been remaining in Jesus for a very long time. She's been patient. And it's not been, I, I know Marion, it's not been any of this fruit. It's just been, I'm just going to stay here. Just going to stay here and be patient. And the fruit of love and justice and humility comes out in her life. Abiding requires healing. You saw that picture of, of, a, of a scion that had been grafted into a healthy vine and there's bandages wrapped around there. You know that God doesn't just desire to injure you and, or, or it's not just a requirement of abiding and being grafted into the vine. But God wants to heal those places too, right? Like, over time, it's not like you've got one vine and then another vine and they just so happen to be drawing the life or one happens to be drawing life from the other. That's not what happens. Over time, those two vines become one. All the while, that science still drawing its life from the healthy vine, still drawing its life from the healthy vine. But over time, that thing becomes healed and completely grafted into a healthy vine. Understand that remaining in Jesus and abiding in him, healing is on the horizon for you. A couple more things and we'll be done. Abiding requires pruning. It requires pruning. And, and watch this. I want you to know that pruning is not always God's discipline, although that's true sometimes. God disciplines those he loves. He comes along and he goes, see that little piece is going out way over here like this? Click. That's gone. It doesn't need to be there. It's not going to help you bear fruit. Sometimes it's that. But sometimes, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says that the vine dresser comes along and any branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Did you hear, did you hear that one in there? He takes it away. That word can also be translate lifts up. So watch this. Sometimes branches grow along the ground and they get caked in mud and they're not getting sun and they're not getting appropriate water. Water, and they begin to die and not bear fruit because they're on the ground. So the vine dresser comes along and takes them away from the ground, lifts them up, cleans them off, and puts them on a trellis so that they could be lifted up so that they could bear fruit. Sometimes that's what pruning looks like too. Sometimes it feels like a chainsaw. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like God just coming along and breathing life and lifting you up. Have you experienced that before? That's not just so you could feel lifted up. It's so that you could bear more what? Fruit. Abiding requires pruning. And finally, abiding will produce fruit. Remaining in him, drawing your life from him. And watch this now. By this, my father is glorified, Jesus says. Next slide. That you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. So now do this, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see it there? Jesus is the vine that bore fruit, kept the Father's commandments, and you can abide in my love and do the very same. These things I have spoken to you so that your joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The charge this morning from John chapter 15 is simply this. Stay there. And abide in Christ.
Uh, the reason that we sing around here and worship, there are multiple reasons. One is to give God the glory that he deserves. The other one is really to remind ourselves of what the gospel really is. Kind of one of our core tenets of what it means to be a disciple of Christ is that we declare the good news to one another. So even when we sing these songs, we sing these songs to God, but we also sing them together so we remember and recall the story of God and how we're deeply rooted in Christ. We are that uh, branch that needs to be grafted into the vine and abide in him. So we've kind of changed our liturgy a little bit this morning. You might, might have noticed or may have noticed that we did two songs up front and then I did my little thing here. We're going to do three songs to close. I would ask you a couple of favors. One, don't leave unless you're like a heart surgeon and you're getting paged and you need to do, do a heart transplant. Other than that, it's rude. Uh, second, um, second, this is a way that we can take a step toward abiding in Christ by remembering the gospel together and singing it together and giving him our all. We're going to sing a song called In Christ Alone. It's basically the gospel from start to finish. We're going to sing an old hymn called Abide in Me, where we invite Jesus now also to remain with us as we remain in him. And then we're going to sing a brand new song that we've been singing for a little while, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. Before we do that, I would invite you to pray with me. Oh God, we are restless and busy people, and so abiding does not come naturally. We like to move and shake and be and produce and whatever. So God, teach us to be the kind of people that remain, that stay, that abide in you. And allow your words to abide in us. So that we could nourish the world around us, our families, our friends, our workplace, school, social relationships, God. Even political systems and structures and business and economic systems and structures, God, that we would be the kind of people that bring the fruit of justice and kindness and humility and that we would be life givers in the world around us because we simply abide in you. God, draw us close to you now as we sing to you. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Let's stand as we sing together.